The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 21 of Shackles, Burlap and Lies. I'm your host as always, Ethan Gilson, and today I am joined by Mike Garl, who currently is the what president and owner of Mike Garl Consulting LLC. Yes, is that the, the actual name? That is the actual name. Yep, that that is it. Um and uh formally heavily involved in the trust manufacturing process uh, companies in, in the past. So like everyone, I'll start with who are you? Who am I? Um, I'm a retired guy at this point, um, but I did spend almost 27 and a half, almost 30 years as uh, president uh, managing partner of James Thomas Engineering Incorporated, which is the uh, at that point in time was the American operation of James Thomas Engineering. Um, prior to that, I spent time, uh, spent five years on the road with Holiday on Ice, uh, starting as an electrician, assistant electrician, spent a couple of years as their sound engineer, uh, head electrician, lighting director, calling spot cues and so on. Um, as I tell you know, people, the story is when I was offered the job, the, uh, the gentleman who was the electrician at the time, a gentleman named Dick Tipping, said, if you stay with the show long enough, you'll end up married to a skater. If you stay too long, you'll end up divorced to a skater. So I married my skater and we left the show. Um, so that was about 1982 and I left that show. To get to that point, let's see, I spent... Uh, a, a couple of years on the faculty at the University of Tennessee in the speech and theater department, um, teaching classes in stagecraft, lighting, electrical basics, sound design. Um, my degrees uh, from you know, Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And prior to that, I spent a year at the Pasadena Playhouse out in beautiful Pasadena, California. And that's when there was actually a College of Theater Arts as a part of the Pasadena Playhouse. Um, that's that's now history. So, uh, you know, I you know, was with, like I said, with James Thomas Engineering for a uh, number of years, left in 2011. Um, and strangely enough, as some people look at it, you know, I left uh, December 30th of 2011 was my last day at James Thomas Engineering. January 2nd, 2012 was my first day working at Tomcat. Um, so at, at that point, I uh, made made the transition from working to Tom, Tom James Thomas to, to Tomcat. Um, at that point, Tomcat was in Midland, Texas, along with other locations, and uh, was owned by a company named, named Vitek. Um, and you know, uh, the short version of the story is uh, Vitek um, hired hired me, and as I learned shortly thereafter because they wanted to get rid of the company um, and the company went on sale and we spent uh, the rest of that year, 2011, 
um, trying to sell it. And basically what they were going to do, simply put, they were either going to sell Tomcat, and if they could not find somebody who wanted to buy it, they were going to liquidate. So they basically, they wanted out of the trust business. Um, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Vitech is a, you know, almost a billion dollar corporation. They are involved in a number of other aspects of the entertainment um, and recording and industry. So this was something they got into that they decided they wanted to get out of. So, um, so basically they sold it to Milos, who are the current owners. Um, we moved the operation from um, Midland, Texas, and consolidated also the operation from Guadalajara. We moved both of those operations to Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, they wanted to get out of Midland, Texas because you couldn't hire good people. It was very difficult to hire good people because out in West Texas, you're in the middle of oil country. And at that point in time, oil was somewhere around $100 a barrel. And even the oil companies were moving their office operations out of Midland because they couldn't hire good people. Because you go to work and you make silly money working in the fields or you make, you know, next to nothing working in the office. So they moved their offices to Dallas where they could get good people. Um, right. But, you know, we couldn't get, you know, we couldn't get good, you know, good people and keep them because, you know, they'd, somebody would come and they'd work with Tomcat for a while. And then all of a sudden they'd, uh, they're, they're gone. They're gone to work for an oil company where they're going to be making, you know, 30, 40 dollars an hour. Right. Um, and we really can't, you know, couldn't compete with that. So that's one of the reasons that we, you know, that we as Tomcat wanted to get out of West Texas. Now, just for whatever it's worth, and it's one of the things I, I look at daily, you know, at that point, I mentioned oil was somewhere around $100 a barrel. Um, this morning, I think it was like 43, 40, somewhere between 43 and $38 a barrel is what it's going for right now. So I'm sure if you had people in, in Texas, you could probably have a welding company there. Yeah, and th there are a few manufacturers, trust manufacturers still in Texas. Um, Correct. Extreme structures, reliable design are the two that pop to, to mind right now. But um, yeah, we talked a bit about the, the, the broad strokes history of trust with Adrian on his episode. Um, but you you had a, a long career with James Thomas. That's actually how you and I met because the lighting company I worked for was a, a Thomas house. And so that's how I got to know you through that process. And then when I got involved with the standards writing, we uh, got to know each other better. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask, since you are actually with James Thomas from the beginning, um, let's talk a little about James Thomas starting manufacturing in the U.S., where you decided to do that, some of the partners you had, because as, again, as I mentioned, what we learned with Adrian was aluminum truss is being sold at a, a huge rate and it's being made over in England and being at times air freighted over to the States because we, we make decisions last minute and I need more trust and you buy it and I need it today. And, um, to, to maintain pace with the competition, which was Tomcat, 
both companies started manufacturing in the States. So let's talk a little about, you know, how you go about starting a company. How did you, how did you shift from doing live event uh, production to running a manufacturer? Okay. First, I'm going to, I'm going to back you up just a little bit, you know, and that James Thomas started making it here because, you know, because Tomcat, Tomcat didn't exist when we started, you know, 1984 in September of 1984 is when I began working with James Thomas engineering. Um, I was introduced by the owners, uh, James Thomas and John Walters. I was introduced to those two gentlemen by Mike Strickland of bandit lights. Um, at that point he was working, um, with lighting companies in England and he became aware of James Thomas and, you know, these beautiful spun aluminum par cans. And they were making a little bit of truss at that time. Um, not as much as they were later on, but, uh, Michael introduced me to James Thomas engineering. And, um, basically we set up an organization here in Knoxville because Michael and I are both in Knoxville. Um, and that's, that's why everybody says, why Knoxville? And it's like, why not Knoxville? If you can set it up where you live, why set it up somewhere else? The other thing is Knoxville has an airport that's big enough that you can air freight, um, equipment into. It has a complete, you know, customs, um, operation here. So that was something that we could deal with. So everything in terms of anything else, um, Knoxville is centrally located, um, intersection of I-40, I-81 is just up the road, I-75. So, you know, I can be, I can be to the East coast in probably about four, six hours. Um, obviously depending on how, how heavy your foot is and how many police are out. Yeah. But, um, so we set up the operation originally, we imported everything from James Thomas engineering in the UK. Um, we had a, a small office, actually it was a small office within the bandit warehouse, um, which is where I had the set up and over in the, another corner of that warehouse is where I kept the inventory. Um, when I say we imported everything, if we needed a hundred foot multi-cable, we imported that. And it was, you know, as time went by, it's like, wait a minute, I know how to make multi-cables. I'll just import a roll of cable. Well, silly as it sounds, we've mentioned several times about um, the idea of air freighting stuff. When you air freight stuff, you're air freighting by volume. Well, if you look at a piece of pre-rigged truss and there's nothing in it, that's a lot of volume that you're paying for. And as silly as it sounds, you can take an entire roll of multi-cable, 1618 multi-cable, which is 1,640 feet. You can unroll that entire cable reel into a piece of pre-rigged truss and it will cost you no more to ship it than it would cost you to ship the empty truss. Um, or you can take that same piece of truss and park hands. Don't put them on the lighting bars yet. That'll come later. But you take, you can put, I believe it's 22 park hands inside a piece of pre-rigged truss when they're in their boxes. So, you know, an piece of empty pre-rigged truss will ship for X number of dollars. A piece of empty truss full, filled with multi-cable or 
pre or uh, par cans or lighting bars or anything else that James Thomas made in the UK, stick it inside that pre-rig truss. It costs you nothing extra to fly right. it over. So yes, we did in the in the early days. We flew a lot of stuff. I mean, when it gets to the point where you know the customs brokers and the customs agents in town know who you are, and the people at the you know out at the airport know who you are um you know it's like you know hi how you doing and you have a good day yep we're, we've got your stuff ready here um so we did that you know and that was you know starting in in 1984 and as you mentioned as as time went by you know the, the question is when you start a, any operation is like how successful is this going to be how much trust can we sell well we started selling a lot of trust because it was a a unique and, and new design. Um, and I will give credit to uh, two gentlemen from Meteorlites, Ronan Wilson and Dizzy Gusnell. I don't know if anyone else has mentioned their name. They are the two people who came up with the original design of the drop bar pre-rig truss. Um, and side note, they originally took that design to Slick Systems, a UK-based company, and said, here, this is what we've designed. Can you build it? And Slick Systems said, oh, we can make it even better. And they did it, made a number of modifications to the design that Ronan and Dizzy brought to them. And in their opinion, Ronan and Dizzy, they screwed up the design. It wasn't, you know, they had figured out everything about it. And Slick Systems didn't make it the way they said. They said, here's a drawing. Just build this. You know, they had to figure, I think they were still trying to figure out exactly how we were going to join them together. Um, bolt plates was, then they went to James Thomas and James Thomas said, sure, we can build that. And they, they built it and they basically started building it from that point on. And for a number of years, every piece of pre-rig truss that was built um, by James Thomas Engineering, uh, Meteor Lights uh, got a, piece of the action so and at that point as as i think you know you and i have talked about this before there was no other uh manufacturing you know company in in the u.s doing that kind of that kind of thing there were a couple of companies who did make some aluminum truss um their names is, i'm forgetting them right now i shouldn't they're based in the in the upper upper midwest um but, you know, so the, the round tube aluminum truss, um, James Thomas was the first company to do that. Now, somebody, everybody, you know, people will say, well, then, you know, what about, you know, Tomcat? Well, Tomcat was making trust then, weren't they? And the answer is Tomcat did not exist at that point in time. Um, you know, it's part of the, you know, the, the stories that are told about, you know, how the trusting all got started and so on and so forth. Um, as I said, James Thomas and John Walters were the two gentlemen who started that company, um, and it basically it uh, they started it they started it in in James Thomas's um, garage. Now, side another side note, and there'll be side notes throughout this. Um, his name is actually James Graham Thomas. Everybody calls him Graham. Now, if somebody comes up to ever came up to me and said, oh, yeah, oh, sure, I knew James. Yeah, I've known James for years. 
you know right off the bat, they're full of it. They're talking, you know, through their hat because nobody that knows James Thomas calls him James. Um, it just, you know, it's Graham or sometimes Gray. But uh, so Graham and John Walters started the company. They started in Graham's garage. John at that point was working for Cadbury um, as an electrician. And basically he would go to work and work at Cadbury. When they first got started, he would come home. He would have dinner very quickly and go. It's basically a, a five, five minute walk up to, to Graham's house. Um, and they would work into the you know, late night hours making their various products. And one of their main products that they made was uh, heating lights for chicken coops was one of the products that was doing very well for them. And then as, as silly as it sounds, in that area in Worcester um, of England, there were a number of you know bands, and I can't remember the names of them right now, and I, I should do some more research and learn those. But um, they ran into somebody from a band, and somebody brought them a, uh, a par can and said, you know, this is the kind of light we use, you know, because they were saying, you know, obviously a conversation going on in a pub, which happens from time to time in England. Um, and they're talking about, oh, we make lighting fixtures. Well, they were making, like I said, they were making heating lights for uh, chicken coops was one of their big things. Well, these, you know, this band came in one night with, uh, with, a, with a par can. Um, I think it was an American-made par can by a company based out of New York. And uh, they said, this is the par can. This is the kind of, you know, thing that we use to, to light our, our band. And Graham didn't have a whole lot good to say about it because, you know, he was very much into spinning things rather than rolled, you know, rolled sheet metal, mm -hmm. rolled tin, which is what the, uh, the par can that, that he was be being shown was made out of. Um, he said, well, let us try, let us try something. So they, they took that par can and they did a, uh, a spun aluminum par can. And um, the, I don't, I'm not sure whatever happened to what I will refer to as the Mark one. There were, a, you know, a number of them, not a large number of the, the originals that were made um, where the, the back cap was actually a bayonet. You put the back cap on and turn it, you know, um, a quarter, not not even a quarter of a turn, and and then the back cap locks into place, as opposed to the completely removable back cap. Um, well, it, the original was still removable, but um, the can that everybody seemed to know for a number of years from James Thomas, and then so they started selling these spun aluminum par cans, um, and they came up with the the Mark II, which is the version that everybody's more familiar with. Um, they, they did them in black, uh, powder coated, and they did them in spun aluminum. And that, they, were, they were obviously a big hit. And then somebody said at one point in time, we need something to hang these on. Here we have this kind of, this, you know, this little tatty truss kind of thing um, that they were using for, you know, for bar, for bar bands and so on and so forth. And said, "Well, we can do better than that." So they they then started making. That's when they the first trusses they made were what they referred to as A type. We 
you know, generically we'll call that twenty and a half inch square truss. Um, and at that point, everything UK at that point in time was still working in feet and inches. So everything was, you know, eight and 10 foot lengths. Um, they didn't, you know, the whole metric, met, the metric system was on, on its way in, in England. Um, my first life in England, which would have been somewhere probably around 1970 or 75 when I was working with an opera company in Italy, um, I would go stop and visit friends in England on my way. And, you know, the, the metric system was, was happening at that beginning to happen at that point in time. So, uh, but anyhow, so, you know, a type was the, uh, or 20 and a half inch GP truss as, as we call it now was the first truss they made. And then as they, you know, got more of that out, Ronan Wilson and Dizzy Gosnell, as I mentioned from meteorites approached them and said, can you make this? And it's like, well, yeah, sure, we can do that. So they made it, and uh, then they made the lighting bars for them as well. And and there was the there was the pre-rig truss with the drop bars. So now, rather than pulling out a truckload of truss and then a truckload of racks, meat racks filled with lighting bars, um, you just pull out your pre-rig truss and. Uh, that's the way it's, that's the way that all got started. So some of the, the versions of the story that I've heard, and, and I say that very specifically because <laughs> when you've been in this business long enough, you hear different versions and some of the details change. One of the versions I heard was that it was Black Sabbath, um, that the uh, maybe the initial contact the one constant in all versions of the stories has been they were all drinking in the pub. Um, there you, there you go. <laughs> that is the one constant is they were drinking in the pub, and in England they would shut down the the pubs at ten o'clock, let's say, and uh, they would all close the doors and close the shutters, but they'd keep drinking. Um, and if, in the in the local Bobby would be invited in so they wouldn't get in trouble. Well, if you were in the bar, so that's that's uh, you could my, stay. This, this is my understanding of of the the laws at the time. If you're inside the bar, the pub, then you can keep drinking, but they have to lock the doors. Right. Okay, fine. So you lock the door at ten o'clock and you drink until the last you know, the last drop is gone or the gone. last patron's yep. gone. You know, you just can't let any new people in. Yeah. So, so uh, they were drinking and it may have started with, Hey, we need a new drum riser. And then that went to, and, and James Thomas or, or Graham and his group having experience with aluminum, were like, we can do stuff lighter. And that's the whole trick with everything we do is we want it lighter to make it easier to move. And that's where the, well, we got these par cans, but they're so damn heavy and we want more of them. So make a lighter par can. Well, the trust that we put them on were, were again, in our industry, we steal everything from everywhere else. Well, you got the steel truss. Well, it's heavy. If I can reduce the weight of the truss, I can put more par cans on it because I have more capacity now and we can put more lights up and et cetera, et cetera. So that 
that's the version that I had heard of, of the desire of why shifting from steel to aluminum. It was all about, can we put more in? And some shippers ship on weight versus volume. So if it's local trucks, it might be weight. So, hey, I can have more lights, but it weighs the same. Doesn't cost me any more bigger shows. And that's especially in that time period, the early 70s, going through the mid 70s and into the 80s. That's when these mega rock concerts were starting to be born, where you had Kiss going out. And uh, last week, I, I posted the link on the show notes about a 3-2-1 contact episode that followed a Kiss load-in. And you can see the meat racks and meat racks of par bars going in to create this show. So it's all those things of evolving and how do we do this more economically in a bigger show so that you can make more money and sell more records and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, yeah, a try it costs, you know, a, a truck costs X doesn't matter what's in that truck. And for the most part, doesn't, cost, doesn't matter how heavy it is, as long as it's not overweight and typically they're yep. not. Um, and so, you know, if you can, if you can, t- you know, eliminate all those meat racks and have the lighting bars actually in the truss, um, which is what the, the pre- Thomas pre-rig truss did, then, you know, you, like you say, bigger shows and so on and so forth. So, yeah. And that's, you know, and that's, you know, that's the sort of thing, you know, like I say, Bandit Lights was, they were doing it, they were doing it with, um, you know, in, in England with some partners over there. And then they did start doing it over here. Um, obviously, you know, using whatever they could get their hands on. In fact, the, st- the story is, is actually they were trying to get some alo- spun aluminum par cans for a particular tour that they were doing, um, you know, in the early days, probably somewhere around 83, 84. And there, there was a gentleman, you know, out west who was selling spun aluminum par cans from James Thomas engineering, but yet he was rebranding them so that nobody knew where they were coming from. And, and at that point, um, you know, basically Strickland was told, well, you know, you need to buy them from this guy. And, you know, I'm looking to buy, I'm looking to buy 1200 par cans. Okay. And they went back and forth and, and, you know, he kept getting the same response from England is like, you need to buy them from this guy and this guy's going to sell them to you for list price. Um, and Michael Strickland being the businessman that he is, wasn't going to pay list price for anything. Um, and finally he is like, you know, back and forth and back and forth. And it's like, all of a sudden it's like, Oh shoot, I'm out of time. I don't have time to get these, even if you would sell them to me for next to nothing, I don't have time to get them here. He made a phone call to New York. He bought his 1200 par cans, you know, his, his steel par cans for that tour. And once the tour got on the road, he then made, you know, made a trip over there and said, guys, this is what your, this is what your guy did for you. You know, you could have had 1200 par cans on this prestigious tour but this guy is going to, you know, he's basically not doing you any favors selling these, uh, selling your par cans. And that's when they, they struck up their relationship uh, with, hence, bandit, with bandit lights. Hence the birth of the term middleman. I'm joking. That's not where no, that term comes from. But no. it is the exact, that is the, the concept of a middleman screwing things up, which is, you know, yeah. taking, their, taking their piece and, and not necessarily... It's, 
and that's, doing the benefit for either end, looking out for themselves. Right. He was looking out for himself. He and it was not just the parkan. It was you know parkans, uh, spot banks. You know, you know any basically anything that Thomas made. You know, he would put his own name on it and sell it as you know as his. And nobody knew where he got these wonderful products from. And he wasn't going to tell anybody. And once that was pointed out to uh, to James Thomas, uh, you know, and they basically said, no, we, we, we have to do something. So they started selling through Bandit Lights. You know, they sold Bandit Lights a lot of equipment. And then, you know, Michael set up, you know, contacted me. And, you know, in 1984, we set up, you know, uh, James Thomas over here. Uh, I want to say it was probably September, October of that same year. I made my first trip over there to meet the guys and to go to the factory and, and so on. Um, so that's, you know, basically, uh, where all of that started. So, you know, so you mentioned that for the first time period, you're importing everything as, as to use the term turnkey, you're importing all the finished product. Correct. Then you, then you start being more economic about it, importing the material, doing the assembly here. When when did the decision be made, hey, we should start manufacturing trusts in the states? And and was that purely based on the demand? Yes. It was based strictly on the idea that they could not make it fast enough. We were saying you know, between what they were selling, what we were selling, it, it just physically could not be made fast enough with the operation they had at that time in the UK. So if you're, if you're going to expand, you might as well expand where the product shipping to to make that process easier. Right. I mean, at that at that point in time, I mean, it it uh, you know when I was you know before before the whole you know James Thomas thing got, I worked with a company, a local company here in Knoxville called Terry Productions. And Terry Productions had their own fabricating facility, so they they made all of their own truss based on the design from company whatever up in the upper midwest that i whose name i cannot remember at this at this time but there were one or there was another lighting company somewhere out in the midwest that they were using all of that truss but we you know, so we did our manufacturing you know and, uh, you know the couple of years that i was with terry productions we made a, we made a lot of truss we made a lot of stage sets we made a lot of you know a lot of everything um, so, you know, manufacturing, you know, aluminum product was not going to be something brand new to me. Um, and it just, you know, that, that was not a, a big deal. Um, so, you know, it was, I want to say somewhere probably um, late 84, early 85, you know, we, we got to the point where, you know, we really need to start manufacturing over here because we can't get it fast enough. So, you know, I knew people who, who, I knew people who knew people, um, we sent, we hired a welder, um, that was, you know, a top notch welder, but we sent him to England for a month, basically to work with the guys in the shop over there to make everybody comfortable over there that, you know, the trust that, that we were going to be making over here was going to be exactly the same as what they were making over there. In fact, um, after when he, before he came back, they had actually 
cut up for the first, I want to say, 100 or 200 pieces of truss, all of that aluminum, all of the pieces were cut in England, stuffed in a container, and that container came over to Knoxville, and uh, along with the jigs, so that he could actually, you know, using exactly the same material that they had in England, the exact same jigs they had in England, he was making truss right here in Knoxville. Did you force him to call it aluminium? Nah, he can call it whatever he wants. You ever, you ever, you ever been to South mm. Knoxville? Uh, not South <laughs> Knoxville. No. Okay, it's yeah, yeah. They, they they have some of their own terminology for things. But anyhow, no, Larry Larry was an outstanding welder, um, and so basically what that did and the the plan that we went into this whole thing with was we are going to send you a welder and you will ship back to us all the pieces we need for, I'm going to say 200 pieces of pre-rig truss and all the jigs we will need to make those pieces of truss. During the time, once it arrives, Larry, the welder, we had one welder, will start making truss. While he's working on those first 200 pieces, we will acquire the equipment necessary to deal with all the aluminum, basically the saws, the racks, the milling machines, the punches, everything that we would need to make those parts. We had that time to do that while he welded those first 200 pieces of truss. And that's what we did. We, you know, we had somebody else in the shop who has you know, had experience you're running a, 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 you know, a fabricating shop previously. Um, and we basically, you know, got all the equipment and put it all together. And we, you know, would, uh, then, then we, you know, were able to source aluminum. I mean, uh, and everybody thinks if you, if you're familiar with East Tennessee, you probably know that just, you know, about 13 miles from where I, I sit, there's a large tower that has Alcoa put on the side of it. And um, everybody says, well, you just get your aluminum tubes from Alcoa down the road. And it's like, no, we don't. We actually get our aluminum from someplace else. The Alcoa down the roads, they do aluminum cans. And that's all that facility does. They make you know, tens of thousands of aluminum cans. But we were able to source aluminum here in, in the U.S., um, you know, the, the appropriate grade, um, which is 6061T6, because you can't get, in, in the U.K., they use uh, the converted alloy 6082, and you cannot get that in the U.S. for any kind of a reasonable price. And the, we had structural engineers look at it on both sides of the pond, and the 6061 um, was sufficient, and it actually met this, the same criteria and was able to, you know, the structures could hold the same um, loading um, that the 6082 stuff made in the UK was. So, so basically the whole process, Larry made those 200 pieces, and by the time he finished using up all this, those bits and pieces we got, we had more pieces so he could continue. So, yeah, originally we had one welder um, and, in, you know, in one in one space, um, 
by the time I left James Thomas, we were in our actually third space. Um, eh, you could say third or third or fourth, depending. We moved we moved from the original space into a no, I had a fourth space across the street into another space. Then we moved into our own, uh, well, a building that we rented, and then we built our own building. But uh, at the end, I think we had, I want to say, was, you know, in the neighborhood of, you know, 20 welders. Um, mm. And obviously a whole staff to go along with, you know, the people who, you know, cut, 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 do the cutting, the milling, and do the drilling as I yep. say. And, and then obviously there are those people when you finish welding a piece of truss, it has to be cleaned. It has to be um, QC'd. It has to be wrapped and packed and ready to go. Has to be sold. Yeah. And sold. And we have, you know, yeah. as I you know, mentioned, we had, you know, sales staff who, who took care of all that as well. So, and then, you know, obviously we started, you know, once we started making it, then we, you know, got, got jigs and, and made the other sizes as well. So, you know, um, we are making free rig truss, 20 and a half inch truss, 12 inch truss, 12 by 18 truss. And we got into making the super truss when they came, you know, designed the forks, the, uh, the double fork that, that James Thomas came up with. Um, actually, Mervyn Thomas is the one that, that actually came up with that particular fork configuration because most of the forks on truss at that point in time, the pin was horizontal to the floor. Um, and you can, you know, that's, there's no, so you need a, a completely separate section if you want to turn an angle. The idea Mervyn came right. up with is you take a, take that, that spigot and you turn it. So the pin is now parallel to the floor and that pin becomes the hinge point. And so, you know, you basically, you know, rather than having, four pins uh, form a straight piece of truss. You pull out two pins on the right-hand side. You fold that truss around 90 degrees and you put in a short gate and drop four more pins in. And now you've turned a right angle. Right. So instead yeah. of having a corner block, you know, here in the States, we're very used to plated truss. So any intersection is based on having a corner block, whatever, Correct. If, whether that's 90 degrees, 45, whatever custom so this it's yes you still have additional parts but it's not a full corner block it's you know two it's a, it's a gate length of pipe exactly you know and the thing about the gate is you know you and we did you know we did this on several different occasions and projects is you know somebody wanted a a 13 agon i think is what we called it um, it's a matter of very simple. You sit down, you do your drawing, and you calculate the length of that particular gate. You know, obviously, it's going to be shorter than a gate for a 90-degree angle. Um, and you basically make this, you know, piece. It's still all the, the side of the truss on the inside, and the outside is this shortened gate mm -hmm. that you simply put four pins in, and you, now you have 13 pieces of truss that, that form this this uh, shape that the customer wants. Customization is a lot more efficient. Yeah. So, and all of that. So that's, that's where all the, the pre-rig trust and that's how we got started manufacturing here in Knoxville. I still, I still use the cut sheet from the super mega truss um, 
in my training classes just to show people um, if you ever needed to do a 120, it's actually 136 foot span with a center point load of 150 pounds, roughly off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Just because it's that, it's that funny. I'm like, you know, if you need to run a single piece of monkey over a river, super mega trust, you can do it with the reality is that truss is designed to be used in a mother grid, which, you know, obviously not at 20 feet in a single span, but 20 feet and have real large capacity. Exactly. Um, but it's still kind of it's fun to look at the cut sheet and be like, you know, hey, at some point I'm figuring out a use for a 120 foot span. I'm just Well, if you look at some of the designs that I mean, not only Tom Thomas did them, but, you know, other manufacturers did them as well. Basically, if you look at a span of truss and then you see the roof structure above it. Now, there are some that we referred to as a lightweight roof structure. And basically, the truss itself um, would have to hold the weight of that structure. All it, all that structure is designed to do is hold a skin so that the skin will be peaked in the center and water will run off of that skin. Then as things you know grew, people wanted bigger roofs. So we then came up with a structure above that. So rather than the the rising beams being a simple uh, ladder beam, it became a piece of 12 inch truss. So now that 12 inch truss becomes a structural element so that the span, even though the span might be 80 feet, it really isn't 80 feet, it's two 40 foot spans because that upper structure is giving you a center center lifting point as far as the horizontal truss is concerned. Right. So that's that's how we got into some of those larger larger roof systems. When when do you think that first need for outdoor roof structures because it it, it is there's today we have several options. Mobile stages are very popular choice. There's some very large stages that are made out of multiple mobile stages, kind of like transformers. They all come together to make this mega stage. Um, but for a lot of people uh, who've been in the business for some time, your first experience with a quote unquote self climber is probably a typical 40 by 40, 12 inch legged, goes up 33 feet, whatever the maximum is. You put a skin on it, you have a small, lot of, a small amount of payload capacity. When do you think that started, that demand started up? Was it pretty quick after that initial 1984, 85 time period? No, it was actually before that. I mean, because when I was working at Terry Productions, I mentioned mentioned them previously. Terry did stages and roof systems. Um, they manufactured their own aluminum trussing and their own structure to go on top of it. Their, their roof system typically was a system that it was a self-climbing system. Um, and as, as silly as it might sound, that was lifted by little motors that were run by truck batteries. And when I say, I mean, you're talking 24 volt batteries, we could you know, run an entire system. Um, and that would basically 
we would put the system together laying flat on the ground. We would put the towers up and the towers were, were actually at that point Roan tower, um, mm -hmm. heavy duty, obviously, welded with extra reinforcements and so on. Uh, we would stretch the skin across this uh, structure. It was, I would say, it's probably 40 by 40. Um, you push the button and these little electric motors would lift it up to a certain height. And at that point, we would take the front higher significant, well, I want to say significantly, probably three to four feet higher than the back. So now you had a rake on that. So if it did start raining, the rain would run off the back. Thank you very much. So, so roof systems were around before, you know, James Thomas got involved in, in building them and got in those kinds of structures. Um, I mean, there was one time I can remember one of the last shows I did uh, working for Terry, we were doing as a Willie Nelson gig somewhere up in Ohio. And we'd set the whole thing up with a Terry stage and Terry top. And, and they said, well, it's probably going to rain tonight. Well, okay, so we made, you know, made, you know, we had a cover for the spot tower, you know, out front because they had four follow spots out front. And um, then here came the rain. So it's like, you know, well, no, we can't cancel the show. Okay, we're going to bring the roof down. We literally brought the roof down as far as we could without hitting the drummer in the head. And we couldn't turn on any of the backlights behind the drummer because we would have fried his head. I mean, that's how low we brought it. But again, you say we have to do the show. That was one of those things. They had this, this you know, local state. It was not one of the major stadiums. It was a, little, a local high school stadium, but it was sold out. And they were not going to refund any tickets if they didn't absolutely right. have to. So we did the show. I mean, you know, Willie and his band, I mean, they basically pulled everything back. We, you know, everything was pulled back from the front edge. And like I said, this thing was down. So, you know, the, the drummer, he could stand up, you know, in, you know, in his middle of his drum kit. And basically his, you know, he was touching the skin, you know, when he stood up. So, you know, obviously he knew he couldn't do that too much, but we did the show. And that's, you know, again, that's the demand that you, you know, that you're looking for. The promoter doesn't want to give back the money. Um, the fans, it's pouring down rain. It's Willie Nelson. We don't care. You know, whatever whatever vehicle we happen to be using that night, um, be it liquid or otherwise, um, we just we you know we're just we're just enjoying the music. So we did we did the show, and after the show, we tore the whole thing down and put it back in the truck and drove home. Thank you very much. So yeah, so roofs were around before before James Thomas got, you know, I want to say Terry was probably doing it somewhere around 1980, 81. Um, and I think there were a couple of other people who were doing them um, as well, the same kind of thing. I was uh, just looking up some information while you were talking because it, it made me think about uh, another topic that I wanted to bring up with you is your involvement with ESTA and specifically the technical standards program. Um, not only uh, has Mike been involved with writing standards, but is the former chair of the rigging working group, but also serves on, on the technical standards program committee. So I've mentioned in the past and previous podcasts that the 
the process for us and ESTA writing a standard is one of the working groups finds, you know, someone brings a need and they fill out an application and they say, I think this working group, usually for us, it's the rigging working group, should write a standard about X, Y, and Z. So you fill out a, a piece of paper and you send it and you say, let's, let's write this. And so the working group, the consensus body for that subject, uh, says, yeah, we think we should write this. But there is oversight to those working groups, which is the technical standards program. And so I've mentioned uh, as well that ANSI does not make standards. They regulate the process for a consensus standard to be created. And all, I say all, they do a lot of stuff. But the fundamental idea is that the organization ANSI is verifying the process which a document was created. They are not necessarily looking at the nuts and bolts components within that document, although they might, but usually it's that that process. So one of the things that I haven't talked a lot about is after a working group finishes a document or the task group finishes, goes to the working group, and I usually refer to it as we kick it up the food chain. Well, you're you're up the food chain. So what happens once the the TSP council gets a document from a working group and says, "Hey, we think this is ready to be a standard." How does it go from there? Okay. I'm going to stop there and I'm going to back you all the way up to the beginning cuz you mentioned, you know, you mentioned the idea someone comes up with we need a standard and they fill out a form and the form has to be approved by technical standards council as well as the board of directors so we don't go you know off on some merry merry chase and waste our time doing things um, but anyhow somebody comes up with an idea we need a standard yes we agree with you you do then the a the working group will form a task group this would be a small group. The working group, I believe the rigging working group at this point has somewhere right around a hundred and something members. Okay. Now, I don't know how many people out there have worked with a group, but if you have a hundred and something people trying to do a project, you don't make, make it very quickly. So we found that over the years, a group of a lot of times it's eight to 10 people. Sometimes it's even a smaller group of experts in their field will actually write the standard. Because quite often in this whole standards making progress, the most difficult part is filling the blank page. You, know, you sit down and you say, okay, we need a standard. What is it going to say? So you have to fill that blank page and this small group of people can fill the blank page. I will use um, the one that the standard I am most familiar with, which is E1.2, the trussing standard. Um, actually, we had a, a failed attempt to write a trussing standard in the beginning. Um, we got so far and we had too many different people that had too many different agendas trying to be involved with writing that standard. And that is something, you know, that we've learned 
you know, the people who are writing these standards quite often have to take off their, their hat of one type or another and put on the technical standards hat so we can get something done. So we basically took a group and we said, thank you very much for all your hard work. We've accomplished absolutely nothing in two years. We then put together a group and I will, I will say that I put together a group. Wally Blunt is the one who came to me and said, Mike, you're not getting anywhere with this standard, are you? For those of you who don't know Wally Blunt, he used to be with uh, Columbus McKinnon. He was the first one to do, actually do chain hoist schools. I first met Wally when I was with the ice show in uh, Tonawanda, New York, outside, near Buffalo. We were playing Buffalo with the ice show. And one afternoon, we all went, you know, all of the technical staff crew went over to Columbus McKinnon and we had an afternoon motor school. Um, that's where I first met Wally. And we obviously kept in touch over the years, but Wally said, you're not getting anywhere. He says, why don't you form a new group and I will agree to chair the group and Columbus McKinnon will facilitate at our facilities. We will help you get this done. So I put together a group that was made up of trust manufacturers and structural engineers. That's it. There, there were one or two other people. I know they wanted to help. And as I explained to them, it's like, you will get an opportunity to have your word, your, your voice be heard. But right now we're filling a blank page. So I had these, this group, we went up to Tonawanda and we sat down. We got a great tour of the CM facility up there. It was wonderful. And in two days, you know, Wally went through, here's how we're going to approach this. And, you know, different people had different, you know, by the time we left after two days, different people had a, had an exact task. If you look at the trust standard, you will see the different areas that needed to be covered, the manufacturing, the inspection, the, you know, so on and so forth. Each area was covered by a different person or two. And it's basically, okay, we're going to get together in six weeks in four weeks, you're going to have this back. You're going to have something back to me and I will compile it all and get it to everybody. So when we meet in six weeks and this time we met in Abingdon, Virginia, which is where CM actually near Abingdon is where they actually make their chain hoists. Um, we met there. We had, um, again, a tour of another wonderful facility, but we sat down and we took all those sections that everybody had put together and kind of went through them very quickly, relatively quickly and lined them all out. So they were, and there was one section, I forget, I'd have to go back in my notes and look. Um, somebody was not able to make the meeting and obviously we didn't have their work. And so Wally, this is the way Wally runs a meeting. He says, okay, now so-and-so isn't here. He was going to write a section on such and such. Okay. So we need to have that. that. So we're going to do that right now. Okay. What do we need? What does that section need to say? And in a matter of, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, we had written, the group of us had written that section. So by the time we were done in Abingdon, we had all of the sections to E1.2. 
Um, and then from that point, we compiled the whole thing. And then, then we had something we presented that's the rigging, rigging working group. So that's what the task group does. And that's what that group did. We then presented to the rigging working group. Now the entire rigging working group or whatever working group, whether it's, you know, we are doing trusting. So it was a rigging working group. If they were doing follow spot positions or fog and smoke or control protocol or electrical, the different working groups that handle that particular, because the working group are made up of a number of what we call SMEs, subject matter experts. These are people who know they're specific in their industry in that particular field, and they're very good at it. So they then get their hands on the document. They will look at it. They'll mush it around maybe a little bit more, and it'll go through one or two, you know, review processes um, while, they, while they figure out exactly wording that needs to be and sometimes making sure that it is the right words and so on. And it goes out for public reviews. And this is, you know, as you mentioned, so you've got the task group gets it to the work group. Working group will go through it. And once the work group is satisfied, they will send it out for a public review. Now the public review process is now um, somewhere in the neighborhood of four weeks. And anybody, this when we do a public review, that public review goes out on the internet. And, you know, we call it, you know, for short, we call it the internet. It is the World Wide Web. So basically anybody with an internet connection anywhere in the world can look at our documents and say, you know, this is what I think about it. Most of the time, the overwhelming majority of our feedback comes from the U.S., Europe, and we do have a number of folks over in, in, uh, in the Pacific Rim who are involved with our standards making process as well. So it will go to a review process. And once it comes back, you know, it comes back. And as I mentioned to uh, Ethan earlier, just this afternoon, we, we are now in the process of reviewing and revising E1.2 because we are required to revise and review all of our documents every five years. So that means that every standard, any ANSI standard that you find, whoever wrote that standard has looked at it, has reviewed it and updated it if necessary every five years. Sometimes we look at it and say, yep, looks good to me, bang, it's off, it's good for another five years. Other times it is, you know, there's a review has to be done. And this particular one for E1.2, there was some, we've, you know, got some comments back. And when something goes out to a public review, comments come back, the task group must review that comment and must respond to the comment. So comment resolution is what that is termed as. And basically, you can't just look at it and say, oh, that's a load of rubbish and just pass it off. You have to come up with a technically based reason why that particular comment is being given the answer that you gave it. So, uh, so basically that's what, I, you know, I sent that off to a task group just this afternoon and we have a meeting with a rigging working group in October. Um, the goal is to have that, finish that, that document, I won't say finished document, that complete document at the working group. 
Now, what happens? At the working group, we will, number one, we will say, does the group, we will present them, here's our comment resolution, does the working work group agree with the resolution that we have come up with? If they say yes, and we hope they do, then we will say to them, okay, here's the complete document that includes that comment resolution or those comment resolutions. Do you agree with that? And they will hopefully say yes. And that has to happen with the letter ballot before it can be forwarded. So again, it goes out to a letter ballot, to the working group. The working group made up of all these experts looks at it and says, yep, we think that is good. Okay, we are happy with E1.2, the revisions you've now made to it. So this will be the 2020-2021 version of E1.2. We started the whole thing in 2000. So it's, you know, it's a 20 year old document, but we keep revising it and updating it. So it comes back from the rigging working group public review. Now the working group, what they've said is they said, we're okay with it. Now that document, the next step in the review process is it goes to the technical standards council. Technical Standards Council oversees the entire Technical Standards Project or program, um, all of the different working groups. When we get to the, ta the Technical Standards Council, um, we have people on there that are from working groups, some that are not from working groups, some that are more from, more electrical, some that are more smoke and fog, some that are rigging. Basically, what we are looking at as the Technical Standards Council is we're looking at process. And as I've mentioned previously, I think we have a 23 page document that has been approved by ANSI that says, this is the procedure we are going to follow to create these standards. So the Technical Standards Council wants to look at to make sure that the working group has in fact followed that process. More often than not, the Technical Standards Council will say, yep, looks good. No problem. There have, however, over the years, and we've been doing this, as I said, for about 20 something years now, um, there have been people who have said, you know, come directly to the Technical Standards Council and said, I'm unhappy with what you, what's going on in that working group. I want to complain. And sometimes the working group has looked at what's been done and it's all been followed very carefully and their, their comments have been, you know, um, responded to in a in an intelligent manner and we say well you know we're sorry but the technical experts say this is the way it should be and there are other times and we said nah, you might have a point there and we sent it back to the working group so if all goes well we send it straight back to the we send it straight over to the um, the working group sends it to the technical standards technical standards council says okay it's fine from the Technical Standards Council, it then goes to the ESTA, Board of Directors. Um, we look at, again, the process. I say we because I am one of the, I, am, I also sit on the Board of Directors currently for ESTA. We're looking at the process. Have we followed the process that is set out to develop these standards? If the Board of Directors says yes, we then agree. It goes to the Executive Board. 
um, which is a very small group of, of the uh, directors. And they will say yes or no. And they more often than not, I cannot remember a time they didn't say yes. They approve it. We have now finished the entire ESTA process for creating standards. The, doc, the document is now forwarded to ANSI. They have a board of review. They will look at it. Again, they're looking at the process. Um, I cannot think of a time when they've come back and said, nope, you need to change something because the pro the, there are technical issues with what you're doing. They're looking at a process and we do, we, you know, they will say, yes, we approve your process. Now, we also must, every five years, I believe, they will do an audit. They can pick any document that we've sent through, and they want to see all of the paperwork that's involved with that document. So we've now gone through an ANSI audit. So that's the whole, that's what happens. That's the rest of the story in terms of de developing ANSI standards. And each of those standards must be approved and re revisited every five years. You know, we can't just say something, okay, we wrote a document in 2000 and we're never going to look at it again. Now, E1.2 was written originally in 2000, and we have looked at it every five years since then. We look at it, is there anything that needs to be updated? There, We made some revisions, uh, I think, shortly after and I want to say the second, maybe third edition of that, because we, you know, it became a concern of people powder coating trusts. And, you know, every you know, powder coating is done with a heat process. And if you heat aluminum that's been welded, you can stress relieve it. And now all of a sudden the structure is not as strong as it was originally intended to be or it actually loses its shape because when we weld them, we weld them in, in, in jigs and they're, they're clamped within an inch of their life. Now they're clamped, you know, basically they are clamped so they cannot move. So nothing moves. And as a welder welds, he doesn't just weld all down one side. He welds here, then he welds on the opposite corner and then he comes back to this corner and they go to the other opposite corner because he doesn't want to get the entire structure an entire area too hot. He wants to weld it, let that cool, then weld something nearby that, let that cool. So there, the welder moves back and forth around the truss in the process of welding that. So in powder coating, we don't want to, we always use on truss, we should always be using a low cure powder um, so that you don't have to crank it up as high when you're doing that. And even at a low cure, you can only powder coat a piece of truss twice because the, the time that it's in that oven is cumulative in the life of that structure. So, right. you know, you can't just do it over and over and over again. Which is where you want to be careful when, you know, you buy truss and you say, I'll just take it down to the local powder coat place and have it done myself. You can do that, but you want to make sure you document we've done it two times or uh, talk with the manufacturer because it, you know, it can change from manufacturer to manufacturer in terms of what their engineering says has been that cumulative heating component. Um, but yeah, and that's that stuff 
needed to get incorporated into the standard. Um, I know that as someone who's written on task groups, there are times where we've beaten a particular subject into the ground. We're like, you know what? The document will not be perfect the first time. And you make a choice that, hey, let's get this document out. So we start to get some traction with it. And you almost right away from the time it's published, start considering, okay, what are we going to continue with this document? What are we going to fix? What are Sometimes it's you're waiting for other documents to get published so right. that you can refer to those documents or what we call suites of documents, documents that are all in the same relative subject group, but aren't in the same document. Um, and that is something I stick my head and nose in here. That is something we had to deal with in the early days of the technical standards process is that, you know, in say E1.2, we couldn't refer to, we knew there was another standard being written for roof systems, but we couldn't refer to that because it didn't exist yet. So yep. we had, and then, so, and that's one of the other reasons that it's good that we do review these every five years so that, you know, if something has changed in, you know, in your technology, in your industry, or another standard has been written that is, that applies to this standard, we can reference that in a particular document. Well, that's been the big thing about the current review of 1.39, which is uh, fall arrest for use on portable structures. Um, in this review process, we're not changing any huge thing. I mean, you can argue that any changes you make could be huge, but a lot of it was housekeeping items, for instance. And, and this goes back to kind of the origin of why we created 1.39 was the ANSI standard that uh, regulates the, the use manufacturing of fall arrest equipment is Z359. And there's a whole series of them. Some have to do with the use, some with manufacturing, testing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, first of all, if you want to buy all those documents, because unlike our ESTA standards, which ProSite has made available for free, normally you have to pay for ESTA standards because it does cost money for these groups to make the standards. And... The Z359 suite, the last time I went to buy it, was almost $400. Right. So first, you're cost prohibitive to a mom and pop shop who's trying to figure out how to do a horizontal lifeline on their truss. Two, if you look up horizontal lifeline and truss in Z359, you won't find those two words anywhere near each other. <laughs> exactly. So our intent was not to create a document that superseded Z359 or any OSHA regulations, but was a targeted amount of information for specific users about how to appropriately apply the rules from Z359 and OSHA to what we were doing, because we don't fit inside the box that currently existed. So we and, and that that is a, that is a lot of what we have done in the technical standards program. And then this is not the first time this has come up over, you know, different, different groups. It's like, no, we're not writing a standard that's going to supersede what you have. 
we're writing a standard for how we use this product. Right. So in this current review, one of the things that changed in Z359 is self-retractable lanyards, yo-yos, whatever you want to call them, are no longer called SRLs. They're self-retractable devices. The committee that manages Z359 wanted to create a little separation between a lanyard, whether it's a shock absorbing or fixed length, and these devices that act like seatbelts that stop you from falling almost instantaneously. So they changed the term SRD. So now in our document, since we we were going to go through and review it, hey, we go through and we're no longer calling them SRLs, it's SRD. So there's updating terms like that so that they coincide with other standards. We removed an image. There was an image in the back of the first version of an example of how you might want to stabilize a chain hoist on a truss. It created more arguments than it solved. So <laughs> the simple solution was, let's remove the photo. Take let's it take out. that out. Take it out. So we did that. So we also, as other technology has come along, started incorporating that. So that review process is important. I can tell you that uh, every five years, wire rope ladders, which was the first standard for the rigging working group, 1.1, um that comes up for review and we look at it it's been uh revised it's been revised once and that is when again z359 changed the maximum weight of a person in a harness went up and so we needed to change the wire rope ladder to fit that because if you're going to put a person in a harness the wire rope ladder should match the capacity of the person in the harness. But outside of that, we haven't changed it. There's not much to change until some technology comes up where we can use, you know, smaller wire rope that's infinitely stronger. I'm making that up. Um, and you say, is there anything to update? No, we're going to reaffirm this. Yep. And then it, it goes through that process. Um, so sometimes it's fast. Sometimes you kind of dig into it right. and you start finding new issues you never thought of. Some new person, uh, and I'll mention this. So Rigging Working Group is the largest working group. Now you can be an observer where you don't get a vote or you can be a voting member. Um, it costs the same. It's $100 a year. Um, if you're a voting member, you do need to be more involved. You have to partake in discussions and you do have to do, as Mike mentioned, letter ballots. If you miss voting on a certain number of ballots or you miss attending even virtually certain number of meetings, you go from voting to observer status. However, we have 70-ish, 73 voting members in the rigging working group. That's a big group. Yes. At, that is a very large group to manage. So uh, sometimes people get involved in the process who bring new information or a different perspective. And they bring up something that maybe you didn't think about in the first one or two versions of a document. And they bring it up and you go, that's a really good point. And so you delve into that subject. And I'm going to I'm going to just take a put a plug in for if people are out there listening to this and you want to participate 
please do not hesitate because the thing is us old guys and that's not necessarily bad because there's a certain knowledge that comes comes with age but at the same time we still need to have younger people involved in this entire process and then i'm going to go back and ask why is why is wire rope e1.1 well I can only answer why is wire rope the first standard we did, but I cannot answer the question about the numbering of the standard. I know it's the first standard. I say we, I wasn't involved at the time, but it's the first standard because honestly, it was the most manageable and it was the easiest one to quote unquote, cut our teeth on in learning the process and getting a document out that wouldn't take 15 years. But no idea about the numbering of the standards. I, I, I've, I've asked Carl uh, before about the numbering, and he told me, and it went over my head. Okay. <laughs> E1.1 wire rope ladder standard. Actually, before we were an ANSI approved, ANSI authorized, recognized standards creating body, we had E1.1. The reason for that is there is a rigger on the West Coast and everybody who's done rigging probably knows him. If you don't, you should. His name is Rocky Paulson. And Rocky had been using wire rope ladders for years because that's the way we work in the entertainment industry. And the number of them in the circuses and so on had wire rope ladders. Well, some local authority in California started coming down on people using wire rope ladders. And basically, after going back and forth and round and round with Rocky and other people, basically he said, but it doesn't, there's nowhere that tells me what I should be looking for. You know, he's the authority having jurisdiction. Whether you like him or not, it doesn't matter. He is the guy that can shut your show down if you don't make him happy. So make sure, if you know he's coming, make sure you have his favorite you know, beverage, non-alcoholic, of course, but you know, cup of coffee for him so he can sit down and you can talk with him. Rocky put together the document. He put together what needed to be put together and he came to ESTA and said, I need this as a standard. So Estes created a standards process, and that was, I can remember the first time I got a call from Paul Vincent, who was the president of Estes at that time. I was walking through the airport, and I, uh, I got a call on my cell phone the size of a brick, um, and he said, we're going to start a technical standards program. Are you interested? Absolutely, was my answer. So we created that you know, technical standards program. And the very first, you know, Rocky was sitting there, you know, kind of as we opened the door, as it were, sitting there with his documents, I need this approved. So we approved that as an ESTA standard first. And then it was uh, a bit later that we got our ANSI accreditation. And then we went back and approved it again. I think we may had to make some minor adjustments, but we then approved it as an ANSI standard. So that's why E1.1 was the first standard and E1.2 was was the second. And then as we, as we look at them going down the list, 
Um, DMX was already is not you know a low one of the it is a lower number, but basically USITT was dealing with DMX and control protocols. So that's not something that that you know Esther said you know that's yours. We're going to leave you alone. Yep. Well then they had discussions of exactly what is USITT and what is their mandate and what are they supposed to be doing and standards was, you know, this particular kind of project was not something within their realm they felt comfortable with. So they basically said, would you be interested? And it's like, why wouldn't we be interested? Yep. We inherited it. So we, we inherited a, a well-developed process. Of course, there are some people that talk about the early days of DMX, how well it was developed at that point. They, they might argue, but, um, you know, so we, you know, we inherited that and a lot of those people from, uh, from USITT. Again, you know, a, a group of people that just, you know, a wealth of, of knowledge and expertise. So, so that's how, and then, you know, how do we get numbers? Basically, you know, at this point, let me pull up something. Where am I? Uh, standards count. One dot, we're at somewhere around 56 right now. Basically, we start at 1.1 1. 1 and 1.2 comes next and 1.3.4.5. Now, there's some of them when we get into some of them that, oh, we're going to write a standard on this. Well, there's more to it than that. We need to kind of refine what that is. So we may have, you know, 1.6-1, 6-2, 6-3, 6-4. And they are all basically the same subject, but different areas of that subject matter. Because the one thing that we've learned you do not want to do, you can't, you cannot write a document so broad that you're going to, you know, just, you can't, you can't say anything. Because you're going, this part will contradict that or something. So we try to keep the the topic as narrow as possible, and that way it's easier to, it's easier to write it, and it, it, we find it, it's a quicker process. But and for, we for, just, go ahead. I was going to say, for instance, in, on chain hoists, um, we have manufacturing of, use, and inspection. Those are broken down into different documents. They're all in the same suite. They're all chain hoists. Um, and then there's uh, a third one, which is control of those devices. So you're not you're not getting a 500 page document. You're getting 300 page documents that you can go through. They're not 100 pages. They're shorter than that. Yeah. Um, that you can look at and find the information quickly. That for me as a and, and fundamentally, I am a user user of this stuff so i approach it from the user side versus manufacturer or an engineer um so quite often what i'm looking to do in the documents we create is make a efficient document that your average stagehand can read comprehend and implement and for me that's the important thing if they're not reading it and they're not implementing it then it does no good because they're yep. not getting the benefit out of it. So I'm constantly struggling to say, sure, we could write a standard that goes over everyone's head except for the top 5%, but then 
it's not going to promulgate within the industry. We're not going to start adopting it. We're not going to use it. And people don't benefit from it. Right. Every, everybody has to be able to understand what it's saying. And, and that's the other reason, that's the other reason we give it away is, you know, I mean, yeah. I'm not going to say that, that people working in our industry are cheap, but you mentioned, you know, you have a, a set of standards dealing with horizontal lifelines. You know, the, the, the suite is $400. I mean, yep. you know, we would be selling very few documents if we were charging. We wanted our, our goal as technical standards council program, ESTA, is to get these standards out there into people's hands. Because the idea is these are, as we call them, these are safety and interoperability standards. So we're trying to keep people safe and we're trying to, you know, interoperability. Okay, 20, 20 years ago, wait a minute, how, when did DMX come along? So DMX 512A, here's the dork coming out of me. DMX 512A was initially published in 1990 by USITT. Okay, question. Before that was published, how did controllers talk to dimmers? Well, it depends on the manufacturer. So for instance, a good example is moving lights. When they started coming along, Martin would have their own protocol. Now, a lot of them were based on what is called AMX. And they would make random choices like on a, a three-wire conductor, pin one would be the common, pin two would be the positive, and pin three would be the negative. I'm making that up. That would be manufacturer A. Manufacturer B, a lot of people blame Martin, would swap pin two and three. That's just whatever reason. That's how they started doing it, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So a manufacturer would make their own controller and their own moving light, and you'd connect the two, and they would talk to each other. Very Light did it. High End did it. Everyone did it that way. So, and that, w that was beyond analog. So analog zero to 10 volts. So we're, we are talking about digital control protocols technically. Right. But that's so what, where, where I'm going with it, the question is before DMX and all the control protocols we had, nobody's device could talk to anybody else's device. Yep. Basically it's like, yeah, there were some, well, some, some were zero to some, you know, dimmer manufacturers, zero to 10. Okay. Oh, but then uh, EDI. Was it 1.4 to 7 or I forget exactly the exact number. Um, I used to know that. But, you know, they had their own control, you know, voltage. So basically yep. their controller could control their dimmers. Same, same with every major manufacturer. And you could have a company that made a really, really good dimmer, moving light, you know, effects widget to add on to your light and their control stank. And you'd be like, I love this product so much, but I hate their control. Meanwhile, the other company made a really good controller and an okay light. And you're like, you know what? Because the controller is so much better, I'm going to go with that because I can get a better result. And it's not until that uniformity that, hey, I can use a flying pig, a, a whole hog console with any number of these manufacturers because they all speak the same language. And we've referred to it before that in rigging working group, the big one has been 
this growing automation side of the world, specifically motor motorized rigging. For a user, it would be great if I was doing a tour, not that a lot of Broadway house have motorized systems, but it would be great if I programmed my rigging show on ETC Foundation, and then the next venue I went into was a Clancy uh, Shamrock system. The Shamrock may be very old and not used anymore. Point being, you could load your show onto media, move over to the next venue, load it in, and it would still work. All your cues would be there. Maybe you're tweaking things here or there, but it was it's the same idea of a common format for information to be exchanged so that the user gets more options. Right. And that's that's the whole thing. And you know, when the control protocol and that's the yeah, as I mentioned, safety and interoperability so that nowadays uh, moving lights. OK, so what is the most channels moving lights? you have ever heard of uh pick a not number. pick a number uh, 130 channels is okay. pretty heavy on a moving light you get to media servers or an led wall stuff now and you're getting over the capacity right so that's you know that's why you know you look at the the, the history of some of these you know dmx 512 well 512 if you had a, a, a dimming system that had 512 dimming channels that was a beefy system oh yeah and nowadays you know each one of these control channels is controlling the tilt the pan the fine tilt tilt the, the the course tilt you know and all these different parameters of the of each of those moving lights and all those different so that's that is one of the things that that i think we we as an industry are you know extremely grateful that we've been able to develop these these gadgets because of the control protocol and i'll another plug anybody out there who has you know devices we have when when we get together again when that happens and it will happen control protocol typically has a thing they call plug fest now what the plug fest is is you have these subject matter experts some people call them nerds some you know but these are they're they're guys that this is what they do. This is what they live for. They live for this control protocol stuff. They will help you make sure that your device, whatever it is, can operate on standard protocol. So you don't have to have your very own thing. So if you plug it into a whole hog or an ETC or an AVO or, you know, the different manufacturers mm -hmm. uh, controllers, you can still run that and it will respond the way you're expecting it to. So that's, you know, that's, that's the plug fest. So when you ever see plug fest talked about, that's what the whole thing is. Because we, again, we have these standards, we have the interoperability and the safety. And if the interoperability standards, if these, if these devices cannot talk to each other, then, you know, those people are sitting in those rooms wasting their time. And I guarantee you, they are not wasting their time. They're doing a brilliant job. I got a funny so. story about plug fest. We were down in Dallas. I've mentioned before that, uh, in, uh, normal years 
we do four in-person meetings a year for the technical standards program for the rigging working groups and for ESTA in general. Uh, usually it would be LDI or NAM. Eventually it shifted to uh, USITT would be the other trade show or conference that we'd meet in person. And then the other two times a year would be uh, in Texas, uh, just out of outside of Dallas, Fort Worth, Westlake, Texas. And years ago, we're down there. I had finished my meetings for the day. It's like 11 o'clock at night. And I decided I'm going to check out PlugFest. And there, it's a suite. And they had a table set up in the middle of this, this suite with a couple of skeletons of moving lights, a couple of control consoles that had been pulled apart, a bunch of wires, a whole bunch of computer stuff strewn around. It's kind of dark. There's a few people there. You can tell people haven't slept much. And people are working on looking at the DMX source code in the packets and reading how many errors are coming across the packet from this console through this moving light. Or a guy, you know, most recently, a young guy who just got into programming is working on a little control widget for LED tape. And he was having some issues. And there are significant engineers from significant manufacturers, and I'm purposely being vague because one of the unspoken rules about PlugFest is you, you kind of, you leave the business at the door. It's really about the technology and advancing the technology in the room. So it's not about, well, company A brought this to the table or B. So um he was able to get the assistance he wanted, but I walk in and they all look at me and they're like, you're a rigger. So like, yep. <laughs> yep. What are you doing in here? And I'm like, I'm checking it. I'm a curious person. <laughs> and that's, that's where, uh, Scott Blair, who, uh, has been in the industry for a long time, he used to be with high end for years and years. And then V E R he's now, uh, started his own business with a couple of, uh, his colleagues that do, uh, control design work. Um, that's where I learned about RDM. And right. I sat down and asked him, I said, so could I do this with RDM with a chain hoist or that with RDM in a chain hoist? And I'll tell you people now, we're not talking about control. We're talking about passive feedback. And he's like, well, sure. Yeah, I guess you could do that. I'm like, that's pretty cool. Their eyes lit up. Because yes. wait, a minute, wait a minute, you riggers can use something that we're doing? Yes, we can. Yep. You know, and and so it it it's a it is a fun environment. You meet some really cool people, um, and sometimes hey, that may be way in the weeds for some people, and that's fine. It's just there's a group of people in our industry that like doing that. The same way that there are groups of people who like other subjects that may not be appealing to the to the rest of us. So. It, it is fun. Uh, you know, I'm kind of percolating an idea here. Maybe I'll run a competition. Yeah. I'll, I'll flush this out. Maybe I'll run a competition where the prize I give out is a year of membership to one of the working groups. Now, you can join all the working groups. That $100 a year fee is not per working group or per task group. It is per person. But maybe if there's some of our listeners who who would be interested in learning more about this stuff, maybe I'll run a little competition to figure out how to sponsor someone there you, per year. There you go. 
let me just, I'm going to quick, uh, quick digression. You mentioned something about, you know, the DMX and what's on what pin and this, that, and the other thing. And it just, it rang a bell in my mind. We were talking earlier about why do we create standards? We created a standard E1.16. Very simple. Configuration standard for metal halide ballast power cables. And the reason that somebody came to us is because the folks on the West Coast and the folks using metal halide, the cable that goes from the ballast to the head, the wiring was not all the same and people were getting electrocuted and they were blowing up very expensive equipment. Somebody said, what can you do? And this particular standard that I'm looking at, I mean, along with all of the credits that go along with it. There's one, two pages of credits. The entire standard scope purpose requirements takes up one page. Everything else is explanations and so on. That's that's the kind of standard sometimes that we write. So there is a yep. standard specifically and now everybody that's using metal halide, the power to head cable is wired with a is the ground pin because they they were different manufacturers different rental houses were wiring them differently now everybody wires them the same because there is a standard and that's what we want and that's you know kind of what what ethan was saying is that you know we want these standards to be in people's hands we we don't, we don't want to write some esoteric standard that nobody is going to ever read or pay attention to or a very small group of people we want these things that everybody can understand and make your life better make your life safer you know for control protocol and like i said we got we've got the control protocol we've got the fog and smoke we've got you know any number of you know as i look down my list uh, here yep it's control protocols electrical power the newest is event safety, and I will mention that uh, in all other eight working groups, the documents that we create in those eight are all E a number. Event safety is ES, and that's a new change. Um, but all the other ones will be E and then whatever the number is. So event safety, floors, fog and smoke, follow spot positions, photometrics, rigging, and stage machinery. So those are the the current nine. Those, those are those are the the different working groups, um, and obviously everything's subject to change. I mean that's you know like I said we've been doing this for a couple of years now. We've learned a lot, um, and there's a, you know there's always more that we can learn. So and, and you and I were talking off the air about uh, a subject that's been happening within rigging, which is the growth of automation, and. We use that term convergence. There may be a time where stage machinery, and there, there have been times where we've communicated back and forth between the working groups saying, and we do share members, uh, but it's been, hey, we have someone who's thinking about a, a, a standard on this topic, but it kind of overlaps with you guys. What do you think? And it may be like, uh, we think we think we should own that one. Or maybe, and there has been one case where it's like, no, you want it, you take it. You oh, have yeah. fun with that. Well, that was that was um, one with from rigging to the machinery, because rigging, yep. you know, somebody in rigging said, "I want to do this," and after a meeting or three, 
it's like, you know, some other guys were over here doing, you know, we're going to stage machinery. And it's like, wait a minute, this fits better over there than it does ours. Right. So, and that's, you know, and, you know, I will jump back for anybody who's listening, who's not involved. Yes, you can belong. We have people who belong to the, the electrical working group, the rigging working group, control protocols working group. Um, any number, you can belong to any number of working groups you want. But I will you know, go back again. Ethan mentioned you must participate because we are required by our, our procedure. We have to have a certain amount of participation. If we're going to, if we're, somebody's going to get forwarded to go move on to the next step for a working group, it's going to go on to the board of directors. We have to have a certain percentage of yes votes. Well, if we have, you know, 27, 30 people who never vote on anything, we might have trouble getting to our number, right. to our percentage. So, and this is a, a, a change we made a number of years ago. It's like, you don't vote on, I think it's four or five standards. If you, if you miss four or five votes, you're an, you're an observer. Yes, you can still see everything that's going on. You're still going to get all of the emails and everything. And this is one of the, the blessings of email is that used to be in the, in the early days, it was costing a lot of money in postage. Nowadays, right. we add your name to an email list and bam, you've got it. You see everything and so, you still you still get to make public see, review you, comments. You can make anybody if you know you, you yep. have an uncle in Shanghai that knows something about a subject that we're talking about. He can make a comment and we will look at that and we will make a, a you know, a, re a review comment on that. So we invite everybody as like, we're not, we don't want to be just, you know, those guys over there at ESTA writing these standards. Now these, these, right. these are for the entire entertainment technology world. Um, and fortunately, and I will say we, we do work closely with the, the British uh, organization Plaza, as well as the German VPTL. Um, you know, so we have a number, we have people over in the Pacific Rim who are looking at our standards. And typically I want to say yep. recently, one of our standards, we actually gave permission for a nominal fee to a Chinese organization to, they originally said, we want to use this, this portion of the standard. And we said, nah, it's an all or nothing thing because this part refers to that part and so on and so forth. And I said, well, oh, okay, fine. We'll do the whole thing. Yep. So we have a number of our standards that are, that are in Chinese, a number that are in Spanish, a number that are in, a, you know, in several different languages, because we want, you know, we like to think that we, that we are, you know, the leaders of, you know, entertainment technology here in America. Um, we borrow stuff from a lot of different places and it's nice that we can all work together to to create these standards and we have people from like i say all over the all over the world involved in technical standards program absolutely and uh you had mentioned something about voting status oh what i was gonna say is and and i'm paraphrasing only because i i don't remember the exact phrasing but every single working group meeting no matter which working group there's a, a set of uh paragraphs that have to be read there's antitrust paragraphs but the the paragraph 
only because I've been to so many meetings that I knew it fairly well, <laughs> is that membership is open to all who are materially affected by the subject matter. So when I'm explaining in a very broad sense what the standards writing process is like to people in the industry, I'll say that means, you know, I'm making a joke here, the DJ who owns a pair of stands and and eight inch tall truss that goes between them is materially affected by rigging. So they could become a member and have an opinion and say, I think we really need to have a standard that addresses these little stands better because they keep falling over on me. You know, whatever it could be. So it, it is good to be involved. We always need users. We have a lot of manufacturers that, that are inputting stuff. But if we don't get equal representation between all the parties, then the documents may not be as effective as we want them to be. Right. So and we're constantly you, hammering that. Right. You, you, you started that particular paragraph and I'm going to, we've, you and I've kind of guessed at things and I will continue reading that paragraph. And this is something that's read at every meeting. Voting members are required to attend meetings and vote on letter ballots. Any principal member and alternate that both missed three consecutive meetings or that missed three consecutive letter ballots will have their membership status changed to observer. So the number, the number is three, three. So yep. we want, you know, we want you to, we want to hear from you. We need, we need your input. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, if, you know, if, but we, you know, and we're, you know, we're hoping, you know, if, if you want to join, please do. We're, you know, it's, this is, we don't want to be those guys that are, you know, those guys over there that are writing guys and gals that are, you know, those folks over there that are writing standards, you know, we want, you know, we want to include people who are using these standards and who are, you know, helping to make their life, hopefully make their life a better and better and safer place. Yep. So. All right. Well, I, don't know, I think we've covered quite a, quite a bit of ground here. And, uh, as I said, we could go on forever on different topics oh, and subjects. <laughs> And, and it, you know, for the, the people listening who've enjoyed the podcast, especially ones like this, um, this is the kind of conversation we have when we do these meetings. We get together after we talk about the nuts and bolts stuff. We'll go to the hotel restaurant. We'll go out to dinner. We'll have conversations. You meet a lot of great people and you have these conversations and you learn so much. And that's another fun thing about being involved. So, uh, all right. Well, I know that you've listened to a few episodes. I know, I, I'm guessing that you know there's one more question that I ask everyone. Which I forget what it is, but that's okay. Well, I know. Remind you, I know it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. What is your best or worst rigger or rigging related joke? Rigger or rigging related joke. <clears throat> you know, it's one of those things that most any other times, you know, if I was sitting in the bar you know, having a beverage, you could probably come up with one or two. But right now, right off the top of my head, um, I'm having trouble coming up with one. So I'm going to have right. to do, I've heard other people do it. And so I'm going to have to, if I think of one at some point, I'll send it to you. <laughs> right. But right, right we'll, off, we'll do the call of, we'll do the call a friend option here. And I'll, 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 I'll offer one of mine. Um, the truth is, there's actually only one rigging joke in the whole world. All the rest are true stories. And I would, I would agree with that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I or, thought of that one last week when talking. Uh, or you with... could say, depending on you know, and, and not to not to besmirch anybody's abilities, but there are some rigging that I've seen that it's a joke. You know, and I and I yeah. say I say this, you know, the idea, and this is something that that we, you know, that people that call themselves or think that they are riggers need to understand. This is deadly serious stuff. This is stuff you're putting stuff over people's heads. Um, it might be just a mirror ball. It might be just a little speaker on a stand, but it, it's up high. And if, if something happens, somebody can get hurt. And that's not good for our industry because, you know, the, the you think of, you know, once upon a time when we were doing hundreds and hundreds of shows, you know, all over the world, basically. And how many of those shows that go off without a hitch, you never know that those shows are happening. But one thing falls and it's on the front page. And, you yeah. know, I'm not speaking of any particular thing, but, you know, it's in any, unfortunately, in any industry, it's, it's you know, that, uh, you know, but ours, you know, we are, we are a high profile industry, which is why we can't go back to work. When we perform, when a lot of us, you know, do our jobs, we're doing it in front of, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds and hundreds of people. And so when something happens, um, a lot of people are going to see that it, ha that it has happened and, or, you know, it's, uh, you know, there, there are several instances over the years in the history where something has fallen and somebody, you know, a well-named individual, very talented individual, um, is no longer able to do what he or she has been doing for a lifetime to entertain people. So right. we take it very seriously, you know, be safe. Number one, be safe and don't be afraid to say, wait a minute, stop. We need to look at that. I understand yep. the promoters. We've talked about these different stories there. The promoter wants to get the show on the audience is Jones and so on and so forth. Everybody, deserves to go home safe and sound at the end of the night. So if the show has to be delayed for a little bit, um, so be it, you know, absolutely. Just, you know, I mean, it's uh, you know, in, you know, in my years with the ice show, imagine, imagine this, how many of you've been to an ice show and you see this mirror ball, it's a 48 inch diameter mirror ball. And at the end of the show, that sucker is rotating and you have four of your eight follow spots that are on that mirror ball and it's sparkling and it looks absolutely wonderful. Can you imagine in one week, two different ice shows had a mirror ball fall, come crashing to the ice? And, you know, the rigging was changed a little bit from then and safeties were installed. Um, but still you can, you, you can do what you can do. And yes, there is a certain risk, that, you know, anytime you hang something up, you know, gravity works that I can assure you, no question, gravity works. So with that, I'll let, you know, I'll let, let Ethan wind up and, and, uh, no, it's, I, it's I, been enjoyable. I, I have enjoyed I, this and I can go, I can go on on a number of topics, obviously for, for quite a while. Well, 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 we will. I've, I've teased people with, you know, after time period, we'll start getting people back on the, uh, 
for repeat visits. But I think your wealth of experience and knowledge of the industry has been, for me personally, has always been very helpful. And being able to share that in some of the stories with people, I think is is great. And it also, there's a, a, a history component to it, which is archiving our history and making sure that these stories are recorded so that we don't lose touch with how we developed certain things and how we came from, you know, holding, you know, wood on fire in front of the artwork on the cave wall to, you know, thousands and thousands of LED diodes on a stage with performers and 95 dB of sound cracking our our ears. Lifting up your entire lighting system with Block and Falls because that was the way it was done then. Yep. And then here's a question for you that I don't know if you have the answer or have heard an answer. You know, who was the first one to invert a CM chain hoist? Well, there are... I I numerous I have an answer. There are new again numerous stories, but the answer that I've heard has been that it was uh, Roy Bickle and the ice shows in the late sixties who took the hoist and said, "Let's flip them over." So Roy, I've heard Rocky was amongst that generation, but I think I think Roy and Rocky get paired together because they're the same age group and they both started in the business together. Um, but I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what what answer you have. I've got it, my my understanding. It was the ice show, and I'm, I'm I'm my mind has gone blank. The electrician at the time, when he left the ice show, he went to um, Rupp Arena in Lexington, Kentucky, and ran that for a number of years. And his name has escaped me, but he you know he says yeah he said, I just you know took them apart and figured out what I needed to do and there are three three or four pieces of wire that needed to be extended so you could at that point in time all of the contactors in a CM hoist were all gravity contactors um, so that you know, if you flip the hoist over obviously gravity's working against you so you had to go in and turn that contactor over. And there are three pieces of wire that needed to be extended an inch or two in order to, to make that, do that to make that happen. And since then, all of those hoists are now spring-loaded contact. They in yep. square, square D was the original contactor, and because CM required their requirement was the contactor had to be able to withstand one million repetitions. Yep. In, in order to, to make their criteria. And there was no spring-loaded contact that could do that. And finally, Struthers and Dunn came along and uh, came up with a spring-loaded contactor. So now you can flip them either way. It doesn't matter. Correct. But that was it. Because, you know, the idea, you think of, think of what we do with chain hoists, okay? We're lifting, we're lifting these lighting trusses. Well, wouldn't it suck sorry to start the day first thing you have to do is you have to carry that chain hoist all the way up to you know all the way up to the steel and hang it and now you can lift your and somebody says why don't we just flip that over and just carry the hook up there well because yep. it's a gravity contactor well we can fix that so yep. but prior to that no they uh they actually tell you know, i have had some pictures somewhere with trusses being lifted with block and falls um, block and tackle, some people call them, block and fall. Yep. 
is, uh, you know, that's how they do it. Basically, you put it together and, and okay, everybody gather around and we lift it up. You know, it's like, you know, back in the old days of, you know, old uh, Broadway theaters in Pittsburgh, I remember working calls when I was going to school. You know, basically everybody's, you know, working on whatever crew you're working on. I was always on electric. But all of a sudden, every everything comes to a stop. Everybody over to the pin, well, not over, the can't, can't get up to the pin rail, but they had dropped two or three bull lines. I mean, we're talking yep. inch, inch and a half hemp because every, it's a hemp house. So you have a pipe full of electrical lighting fixtures, cable and everything. And here you go. Everybody is pulling to get that sucker up and you get it up there and that's where it's going to stay for the rest of the week. Nowadays, it's, you know, just add another, add another counterweight or just push that button again and take it up a little bit more, let it down. Now you get it to a point like that's where it's going to stay. You get yep. one, you get one choice, one yep. chance. So thank you very much, Ethan. I hey, appreciate it. Thank you. I, I appreciate you spending time. I, uh, well, thank you. I, uh, I enjoy, you know, spending time with uh, my guests and talking to them and sharing some of the stories that I've heard and, I think it brings good information to uh, the masses. So thank you for spending time doing such. And yeah, I think that's it. So thanks everybody for listening. I appreciate the support. And until next time, keep the pen in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger. A rigger was he. The shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be.